1: Joining us on Pod Save the World for a very special, terrifying breaking news update is former Deputy National Security Advisor for Strategic Communications and best friend of the pod, Ben Rhodes. Ben, thanks so much for doing this, man.
2: Good to be with you, Tommy, Uh, although a little unsettling. (laughs) Yeah,
1: a little unsettling. So, okay, we wake up this morning and we read in the Washington Post that North Korea has successfully produced a miniaturized nuclear warhead that can fit inside its missile. So... I think we should talk a little bit about the context here, sort of the key elements of creating a nuclear weapon. So we know that they've created nuclear weapons. They've tested them twice last year or several times previously. They tested two ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, last month. So we know that they're progressing fast on their rocket technology, their missile technology, and trying to reach further and further into the continental United States. The steps that we always thought might take some additional time were taking that nuclear warhead and shrinking it down so that it could be placed on the missile, and then creating a nose cone strong enough to survive reentry when it's launched into space and then has to reenter our atmosphere to then come and hit the United States. So can you talk about how significant this Washington Post report is and what you made of it?
2: Yeah, so you had a good summary there, Tommy. And what I'd say is the Washington Post report, if true, we obviously don't have access to the intelligence, It's important, but it does not equal all of the steps that you said. Um, Again, for this threat to be a risk to the continental United States, they would need an ICBM capability, accuracy for that ICBM, the ability to miniaturize a nuclear device, and the ability to marry all of those different capabilities into a nuclear ICBM. So even... The Washington Post report doesn't suggest that they've done all of that. It does right. suggest that, if true, they have the ability to take a nuclear capacity and, and miniaturize it. But again, it doesn't suggest that they have put together all of the pieces to pose a direct threat to the United States.
1: Right. And we also should note that I think subsequent reports have indicated that this is not necessarily a consensus view of the intelligence community. I think it's only certain components believe that they've taken this miniaturization step.
2: That's right. And and let's keep in mind that their first nuclear test was in 2006. And so for many years, they've had the ability to detonate a nuclear device. And again, uh, first of all, these are assessments we don't know with certainty. But the complexity of marrying an ICBM capacity with a nuclear capacity that is miniaturized, that can withstand the atmosphere, and that can be shot with some degree of accuracy, involves many different moving parts. Uh, and it's not clear yet that they have all of those pieces together.
1: Right, right. So not a report you want to read. Alarming, but everybody doesn't need to panic yet if you live in Los Angeles or Alaska. However, Donald Trump today did a press avail where he said, and I quote, North Korea, best not make any more threats to the United States. They will be met with fire, fury, and frankly, power, the likes of which the world has never seen before. What did you make of that rhetoric, Ben?
2: Well... I think it's very dangerous and concerning, and that's for a number of reasons. Think about what that rhetoric suggests. Either, number one, he's going to make good on that threat, and there's going to be a war with North Korea, which would be a catastrophe. I think most assessments are that within minutes of a war with North Korea, tens of thousands of people could be killed on the Korean Peninsula, including in Seoul, which is not very far from North Korea, and where there are tens of thousands of Americans, and there are also tens of thousands of American service members in South Korea. So a war with North Korea is not something that could be done in a limited way. Uh, it could risk significant death and destruction, the likes of which we haven't seen, really, since World War II. Yeah. Uh, secondly, if he's not going to act on those threats, then he's diminishing the credibility of the United States. Because, essentially, he's saying that in response to Kim Jong-un's provocations, he's going to bring down fire and fury. If we don't do that, which I actually think would be a preferred outcome, well, then people question the word of the United States, and do we make good on threats? And, and these threats, by the way, will also concern and alienate us potentially from our allies, South Korea and Japan, who don't want a war right in their neighborhood. Uh, they could alienate us from China, who we want to work with to address the threat of North Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in essence, he could be diminishing the, the word of the United States uh, while also destabilizing the relationships we need. And... Therefore, either outcome is bad, a war that could bring catastrophe, or the type of threats that, if not acted upon, diminish the credibility of our deterrent uh, and alienate us from the countries we need to work with to get this done.
1: Yeah, and just some numbers about, you know, going back to what you're just saying, 28,500 U.S. troops are in South Korea I believe 54,000 US troops are in Japan. That doesn't even account for the tens of thousands of civilians. So ICBM or no ICBM, a shooting war with North Korea would result in a lot of deaths of our allies and of Americans. So I mean, I guess stepping back a little bit like, okay, Donald Trump did not create the problem of North Korea. You said earlier that their first nuclear test was in 2006. Recently, it seemed like he got a win, though. He passed, there was a unanimous UN Security Council resolution that passed over the weekend putting further sanctions on North Korea. Do you think that that was a a meaningful action or that he should have sat back and tried to let those bite? Like, what should they be doing right now?
2: It is a meaningful action. I mean, we've passed similar resolutions the Bush administration did, so it's not unprecedented. But sanctions only work in terms of enforcement. And so if I was the Trump administration, what I'd be focused on is making sure that those sanctions on North Korean exports are enforced so that uh, North Korea feels some pain. Now, you also have to remember that sanctions are not an end of themselves. Nobody believes, or I certainly don't believe, that North Korea will just come out with their hands up and give up their nuclear weapons purely because of sanctions. Uh, they believe that nuclear weapons are essential to the survival of their regime. What you need to do, though, is leverage those sanctions to get concessions out of North Korea. So what I'd be focused on is, look, our ultimate goal is denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and North Korea giving up its nuclear weapons. I don't think anybody believes that's going to happen in the near term, but we want to stop them from achieving the capability that we discussed, which is an ICBM that can hit the United States with a nuclear warhead. So I'd be trying to negotiate diplomatically uh, the type of interim agreement not unlike the interim agreement, by the way, we had with Iran back in 2013, where they're accepting limitations on their nuclear program. They're halting testing of their ICBMs. They're not moving forward with their nuclear program. There's some degree of inspections and verification uh, in exchange for some limited relief from these sanctions. So we should be leveraging these sanctions to try to get diplomacy moving again. Uh, It seems instead that Trump is moving in the direction of escalation, And frankly, I do not believe and cannot believe that Japan or South Korea support that course of action. I know China would never support that course of action. So he risks a moment of international unity, passing this resolution, putting the United States in an isolated position where we are not able to bring along the world behind our course of action. And that only makes a a very hard problem that much harder to deal with.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And not only is there, you know, does he risk sort of breaking apart a coalition that seems united, but... I don't understand why you would parrot the rhetoric that usually comes out of North Korea. I mean, fire, fury, that's the kind of stuff you usually see in North Korean propaganda films. Like, do you think this was calculated or him just saying something kind of crazy?
2: I think there's a real question here. Did General Mattis approve that language? Did Chief of Staff Kelly approve that language? Did Rex Tillerson approve that language? Or is Donald Trump just functioning totally separate from his entire National Security Council? Uh, and, you know, this kind of thing we laugh about when he's talking about, you know, fake news and, you know, whether or not Dick Blumenthal, you know, should be held to account for <laughs> Vietnam. Right. But right. we're talking about nuclear war. Right. right? right. Uh, and so, I, I mean, I, I think this question of whether Trump is acting and talking in isolation from the supposed reasonable adults in the government is very important because a president of the United States has significant authority to launch military action or even to launch nuclear weapons. And so I have a real question as whether this was scripted, whether this was planned. And I think that should be of interest to Americans because is this really the informed judgment of his entire national security team or is this something he decided to just, you know, pop off and say? And the fact of the matter is, too, you know, in a weird way, he's elevating Kim Jong-un. You know, Mm -hmm. he's by engaging in his type of rhetoric and by spotlighting North Korea to its extent. He's giving the North Koreans this attention. He's putting them kind of in this mano-a-mano posture with the president of the United States uh, in a way that I think elevates the leader of the most isolated country in the world. I don't think that makes much sense either. Uh, and finally, I would just say that, you know, uh, we spent many years being criticized for the you know, the red line that the president set in Syria, which we leveraged, by the way, to pursue a diplomatic resolution to try to remove Syrian chemical weapons you know this is the same thing but that much more extreme uh promising to respond to north korean threats which are surely going to come with fire and fury and again if he's not going to follow through on that which i hope he doesn't um that is going to diminish uh his credibility and his standing with uh with these other countries that we need to work with
1: yeah this is absolutely a red line and and this is another thing obama was criticized for was for being uh aloof and professorial and wonky sounding. And uh, boy, do I miss that tone at times like these. This does not seem like a great way to conduct foreign policy to me.
2: Well, look, belligerent rhetoric, you know, can play well in certain parts of the American political system. But (laughs) it it doesn't play well abroad. I mean, right now, if you're a listener to of the World, uh, you know, close your eyes and imagine being a young person in Seoul. You know, you're just waking up to this news. You've learned to live with the threat in North Korea. And suddenly you've got the President of the United States, who, as the ally of Japan and South Korea, is in part responsible for the security of those allies, threatening a very dramatic escalation. And make no mistake about this, the fire and fury he speaks of will rain down at a minimum on Seoul and Tokyo, as well as North Korea. Um, you know, Anybody who's looked at the capabilities of North Korea and assessed what would happen in a military action knows that, you know, there's not some clean, preemptive strike that can just take care of this problem and get it out of the way, that that North Korea is so close to Seoul and Tokyo and American service members there and the hub of the global economy, not to mention millions of South Koreans and Japanese, that the, the toll of this kind of war would be extreme. So, I mean, I think we have crossed from the scenarios where Donald Trump is, again, talking about fake news and even you know, very damaging domestic legislation like healthcare. Now we're talking about a potential international crisis beyond anything that we've seen in recent decades, you know, and that I think should give us all concern.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we're talking about a potential toll not just from nuclear weapons, but from the thousands and thousands of pieces of conventional artillery that North Korea has pointed at Seoul and has hidden in caves. And, you know, there's reports of sleeper cells and tunnels and god knows what and god knows what's true but it would be a massive military incident that would lead to a lot of lives lost so uh we should not be joking around about it mr president ben anything else i should ask you before i let you go
2: no that's it i mean you said it tommy i mean they've been preparing for a scenario where they're attacked for decades so they have the ability to withstand some kind of strike and you know even if it's suicidal cause enormous damage in Seoul with conventional rockets in addition to their nuclear weapons. And look, maybe we all wake up tomorrow and Donald Trump moves on to tweeting about Fox and Friends and uh, Dick Blumenthal and whatever else occupies his attention and this is just a passing blip. But even if that is the case, you know, I think it does serve as a wake-up call to Americans that the Trump presidency is not just something that can be you know, taken lightly or it's a passing oddity, you know, there's going to be national security crises that emerge, either that we create or that come to us over the next three and a half years. And, you know, this is a concerning indication as to how he's going to approach these issues, because he has yet to deal with a terrorist attack. He's yet to deal with Russia invading one of its neighbors, as it has done under both Obama and Bush in Georgia. Um, He's yet to deal with a pandemic. And so, you know, we have to hope that there is a more sober group of people in the Trump administration who are able to shape how we respond to those inevitable incidents. Today is not a good indication as to their ability to shape at least the words of the Yeah,
1: that is uh, well said. Well said, buddy. Ben, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. You are a a true friend of the pod, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again soon. guys it's been a rough year it's gonna get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst pod save america is going on tour he's probably asleep right now but if he were conscious he'd be so so jealous the democracy or Else tour begins in brooklyn on june 26 followed by boston on june 28th then we go to madison phoenix ann arbor and philly see all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events My guest today on Posse of the World is a guy named Bill Browder. He wrote an incredible book called Red Notice that is all about the extraordinary corruption he faced in Russia. But that book is incredibly relevant right now in the wake of Donald Trump Jr. and Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner's meeting with a Russian lawyer who they claimed was fighting to change adoption policy or the Magnitsky Act sanctions. Bill is the reason the Magnitsky Act exists. He talks about who Sergei Magnitsky was, his story, and why he felt the need to fight for these sanctions. So please check it out. It is a critical piece of understanding the puzzle that was that meeting. Joining me on Pod Save the World this week is Bill Browder. Bill is the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, which was the investment advisor to the largest foreign investment fund in Russia until 2005 when he was denied entry to the country and declared, quote, a threat to national security. He's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Red Notice and the Driving Force Behind the Sergei Magnitsky Rule of Law Accountability Act, which was passed into law in 2012. Bill, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I appreciate it. Great to be here, so I actually read Notice a, a long time ago, way before Russia was part of the daily conversation. and wanted to talk to you about it because it's a riveting story, and everyone should read it. I and mean, it's it's amazingly documented account of corruption in Russia at a scale that I think is kind of hard to fathom as an American. But your story is particularly relevant now in the wake of Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with a Russian lawyer claiming to have dirt on Hillary Clinton. The part of the spin about the discussion was that it was about adoption in Russia and the Magnitsky Act. Sank Magnitsky Act sanctioned. So I was hoping to start by asking you just the basics. Who is Sergei Magnitsky and how did you get to know him?
0: So um, Sergei Magnitsky was my lawyer in Russia. We knew each other for a long time, but he became very central to my situation when uh, our offices were after I was kicked out of Russia that you mentioned in 2005, my offices were raided by the police in 2007. And uh, they seized all of our documents, the police. And we didn't know what they were going to do with them. But generally, when you when when the Russian uh, police get involved, you know something dubious is going to happen. And, and Sergey was the smartest lawyer I knew in Russia. He was, at the time, 35 years old. Uh, he worked for an American law firm called Firestone Duncan. Mm-hmm. And um, he was this really um, earnest, smart, good guy. And, and I asked him to investigate what, what the police were up to and whatever... Nefarious things they were trying to do. If he could help me stop them, and so Sergey went out and investigated, and he came back and said these police officers seized your documents in order to steal your investment holding companies. These were the companies through which we had invested in Russia. And thankfully, by the time they stole our companies, we didn't have any more money in them because we had this was between the, after I had been kicked out, so we liquidated the companies. But they ended up stealing our, our investment holding companies. And what Sergei figured out was they had used our stolen investment holding companies to go back to the tax office and apply for a tax refund. And in the previous year, before our companies were stolen, we had paid a huge capital gains tax bill of $230 million. And what Sergei had discovered was that this group of, of police officers and organized criminals and tax officials had used our stolen companies to apply for a 230 million dollar tax refund it was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia they applied for it on the 23rd of December 2007 two days before Christmas and it was approved and paid out the next day the largest tax refund in the history of Russia wow. and it was just a and it wasn't it wasn't our money that they had stolen it was basically Russian government officials were stealing money from their own government using our investment holding companies as the vehicle to do this and and we were, Sergey and I were both shocked because we were always under the impression that Vladimir Putin was this hard-driving patriot and nationalist and that he wouldn't have authorized a bunch of um, officials to steal their own state's own money. And so we thought if we publicized this, put it out into the open, uh, and, and wrote criminal complaints everywhere that the good guys get the bad guys, and that would be the end of the story. And so so we, we wrote criminal complaints everywhere. I went to the newspapers and television, and then Sergei went to the Russian State <clears throat> State Investigative Committee, which is their equivalent of the FBI, and um, gave sworn testimony against the police officers who had conducted the raid. And then we sat back and waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. Unfortunately, in Russia, um, as we discovered, um, in Putin's Russia, I should say, there are no good guys. And, and on November 24, uh, 2008, about six weeks after Sergei, gave his testimony against the police officers, the same officers he testified against, uh, came to his home uh, in front of his wife and two children, arrested him, where they put him in pretrial detention, and and then he was then tortured to get him to withdraw his testimony against these crooked police officers. Right. They did some really bad stuff to him there.
1: Well, so in, in just a little context for people listening, so when the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia moved to shift its economy from communism to capitalism, and they privatized all these state-owned businesses. And instead of spreading this money evenly or fairly, the auctioning off of these assets were, were gobbled up by politically connected individuals who are, I think, today known as oligarchs. I think there are 96 Russian billionaires currently. And so one of the fascinating things about your story, and again, everyone should read your book, um, because it goes through this in great detail, is for a while, it seems like you had inadvertently found common cause with the Putin government. You were investigating corrupt officials who were stealing from him, so they kind of left you alone. But what's so remarkable about the corruption you described is, ultimately, you managed to find a decision made by Vladimir Putin himself to extort money from these oligarchs. Can you talk a little bit about that and the arrest of Mikhail Khodorovsky and the message it sent to the Russian oligarchs?
0: Yeah, so the it was some... Um when Vladimir Putin became president, uh, he was president of Russia, but he wasn't really president of Russia because many of the powers of the presidency had been informally seized by these oligarchs, these wealthy guys. They, they had effectively like, put on their own private payroll government officials to make decisions in their favors, and they, they all had private members of parliament to do things for them. And, and so as a result of that, he, Putin really didn't have all this power that the president should have. And the president legitimately should have. And so, and and at the same time as as that was going on, these oligarchs were stealing massive amounts of money in the companies that I was investing in, like Gazprom, the national gas company, and stuff like that. And so at that time, my way of fighting with the oligarchs was to research how they did the stealing and expose it. And I I was just doing all this research and exposing them at the same time as Vladimir Putin had come into power and he was fighting with the oligarchs who were stealing power from him. And there's an expression that your enemy's enemy is your friend, and that this couldn't have been more true at that moment in time. This was around 1999, 2000, just as Putin had showed up in Russia, and, and showed up on the national scene, I should say. And so every time I would I would out and expose one of these crooked oligarchs, Putin would step in and fire somebody or issue a presidential decree or do something. And, and I've never met Vladimir Putin or never spoken to him, but we had this weird alignment of interests for some period of time, and. And I I actually thought he was a pretty good guy at the time because every time I would put some bad stuff out there, he would crush the crooks. Mm -hmm. And so it it all felt pretty good, and and it was all very profitable as well. And my portfolio was going up, and I thought I was making Russia a better place, and we had this great esprit de corps in our office as we were getting the bad guys. And one thing I truly misunderstood about the whole thing is that um, Vladimir Putin wasn't doing this because he didn't like crooks. He was doing this because he didn't like these oligarchs who had his power. And it all came to a head in October of 2003, in where he, uh, the richest oligarch in Russia was a guy named Michael Hordakovsky, and he was on his plane. Uh, he had landed his plane in, in an airport in Siberia, a private jet, and a bunch of police cars surrounded his private jet, and, and Putin basically had the richest man in Russia, Michael Hordakovsky, arrested. And they put him in prison, and then they put him on trial in the summer of 2004, and they allowed the television cameras to come into the... Um, courtroom and film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. Now, imagine that you were the 17th richest man in Russia. <laughs> you were on your yacht, parked off the Hotel du Cap in Antibes, France, right. and, and you've just finished up in the bedroom with your mistress, and you wander out to the, to the um, living room, and you flick on CNN, and all of a sudden you see a guy who's far smarter, far better, far more powerful than you sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction going to be? Well, Grovel. to not sit in that cage. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. right.
0: So one by one by one, these, these oligarchs went back to Putin in the fall of 2004 and said, hey, Vladimir, what do we have to do to make sure we don't sit in a cage like Michael Hordakovsky." And Putin said, oh, it's very straightforward, very simple, 50%. And I, I should point out, this is not, he wasn't asking 50% for the Russian government or, right. or 50% for the presidential administration of Russia. He was asking for 50% for Vladimir Putin. And that was the moment um, in the fall of 2004 that Vladimir Putin became the richest man in the world. And unfortunately for me, that was the moment that um, my interests radically diverged from his because I kept on exposing corruption, but I was no longer exposing the corruption of his enemies. I was exposing the corruption in which he was a 50% beneficiary.
1: Right. I mean, I think there's so much talk about Russia in the United States, and it's hard, I think, sometimes for people to level set of whether he's he's a bad or good guy or really bad guy. I think that the corruption is staggering. I mean, the other thing that's remarkable about Sergei is, you know, he's often described as a lawyer. He seems like he might also be the best investigative journalist in the history of Russia, because given what he was able to uncover. But as you described earlier, he was tortured and murdered in prison. And we know this because he meticulously documented his treatment through written complaints that were submitted to his lawyers. Can you talk a bit about that unjust detention and treatment? I don't want to get into the unfortunate details, but I think it's important for people to understand well, his I, treatment. I, I
0: think we should get into the okay, unfortunate okay. details okay, because, uh, because everyone needs to know what, what happened to him. Yeah. So uh, after they arrested Sergey, um, they started to torture him to get him to withdraw his testimony. They, they put him in, in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in the dead of winter, so he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They'd move him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. And the purpose of this was to get him to withdraw his testimony, but they also wanted to get him to sign a false confession, saying he had stolen the $230 million and he had done it on my instruction. And they figured okay, here's this guy, he he wears a, a white shirt and a red tie and a blue suit and buys his Starbucks coffee in the morning and goes and sits in his cubicle in an American law firm, you know, throw him in, in this type of conditions, he'll buckle in a second and sign anything they put in front of him. And what they never anticipated was that Sergei Magnitsky, his principles and ideals were so strong that there was like, there was almost there was nothing they could do to him that would make him perjure himself and bear false witness. Mm-hmm. And so they just kept on ratcheting up and ratcheting up this this horrible mistreatment. And after about six months of this, uh, he ended up getting sick. He ended up getting terrible pains in his stomach. He ended up losing 40 pounds. And the prison hospital diagnosed him as having pancreatitis and gallstones. And he was scheduled to have an operation on the 1st of August 2009. And then about a week before his operation was due, um, instead of operating on him, The person in charge of the investigation, who is is the guy who was trying to get him to sign all the false confessions, abruptly moved him from the prison that had a medical wing to a maximum security prison in Moscow called Butyrka, and Butyrka is considered to be one of the toughest, most horrible prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei Magnitsky, there was no medical facilities there, and so at Butyrka his health completely broke down. He went into constant agonizing ear-piercing pain for his untreated pancreatitis. And he and his lawyers wrote 20 different requests to every different branch of the criminal justice system begging for medical attention, and every different branch of the criminal justice system either ignored or denied in writing his requests for medical attention. And things just kept on getting worse and worse. And on the night of November 16, 2009, Sergei Magnitsky went into critical condition And on that night, the um, authorities at Butirka didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore, and so they put him in an ambulance, sent him over to a different prison that had a medical wing. But when he arrived at this other prison, instead of putting him in the emergency room, um, they put him in an isolation cell, they chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him until he died at the age of 37. He left a wife and two children.
1: The evil people who did this to him. Do we have any sense of who ordered or approved that treatment, how high up this decision went?
0: Well, we do. Uh, it's interesting because the Russian system is like the Gestapo. They, they document everything, mm-hmm. and, and they never think that there's any consequence to documenting everything. And so, like, all the, the riot guards who were involved in the beating, they, were, they, were all docu- they documented it, and they signed the protocol saying, yes, we participated in the beating that we were instructed to participate in with, using rubber batons. Yeah. So, so everything is documented. We know who did what to who, him, and so there's and there's two places we know stuff. One is from their, their system, but the other thing is that prior to the last night of his life, Sergei Magnitsky wrote everything down. Every, everybody has their own way of dealing with adversity in this type of situations, and Sergei, who was the sort of consummate lawyer, wrote down every violation of his rights while he was in prison. He wrote during his 358 days in detention. He wrote 450 complaints. At once a month or so he would hand a big stack of handwritten complaints to his lawyer his lawyer would file them and make copies and almost all the time they ignored them sometimes they they replied and rejected the complaints but most importantly uh, we ended up getting the full a uh, fully documented 450 complaint dossier of what happened to him and it, and he it's the most well documented granular detail of uh, history of human rights abuses come out of Russia in the last 35 years and it's just it makes horrific reading but it also um is a a blueprint for getting justice because Mm. this this is not uh, some undeniable thing it was you know we have his testimony from the grave plus corroborating evidence from their own prison files
1: so from the moment of his death you decided to make getting justice for him the focus of your life because that couldn't happen in russia In fact, the people who mistreated him were promoted, rewarded in some cases. Uh, You've sought justice for him in the West, particularly in the U.S. In 2010, Senators Ben Cardin and John McCain introduced the Sergei Magnitsky Rule of Law and Accountability Act. That legislation froze the assets of those involved in his killing and others in human rights abuse cases and prevented them from getting visas. Can you talk about those sanctions, why they upset Putin so much that he decided to punish Russian orphans of all people? And my understanding from reading your book is that the conversations you had with the administration, the White House, the State Department under John Kerry at the time, about those sanctions were frustrating. I was part of the administration, but not at that time. And I was wondering if you could talk about that and the complexity there.
0: Sure. Let's start with why why did Putin react so badly to this? And let me me start out by saying Putin reacted really badly to this. (laughs) This is, for some reason this really got under his skin. What is the reason that it got under his skin? The reason is because since this whole thing happened, and this, uh, this has only come to us in, about a year ago, we've actually traced some of that $230 million that Sergei exposed and was killed over. We've traced it through the Panama Papers. Do you remember this big leak that came out a year ago called the Panama Papers? I do. It was a leak of financial information. And through the Panama Papers, we were able to trace some of the money from the 230 fraud going to a famous Russian cellist named Sergei Roldugin.
1: They're usually billionaires, Sergei,
0: right? Rold, Sergei Roldugin, according to the Panama Papers, is worth about $2 billion. <laughs> and he's not worth $2 billion because of his great cello playing. Right. He's worth $2 billion because he holds the money for Vladimir Putin. Right. And we've traced some of the money from the Magnitsky crime going to Sergei Roldugin, which means, in essence, the money from the Magnitsky case goes to Putin. And therefore, under the rules of the Magnitsky Act, Putin could be sanctioned. Now, why is Putin so scared of these sanctions? Because Putin is not like any other world leader. Putin is a very rich man. And coming back to the 50-50 deal I told you about at the beginning of the conversation, mm-hmm. where he gets 50% of the money from the Russian oligarchs, that 50% has, has translated into $200 billion of net worth for Vladimir Putin. And that $200 billion is held across the world in Western banks and U.S. banks, et cetera, And so... And, and I should point out that Putin's whole modus operandi has been, and, the, and the, the objective of his presidency has been to accumulate as much money as possible, stealing from people and from the state. And if all of a sudden that money can now be frozen and seized by the United States government and other foreign governments, that's the most serious personal risk that Putin has ever faced outside of his own country. Right. And so how did he react to the passage of the Magnitsky Act? He reacted in the most brutal, sadistic way anybody could have ever acted, which was to ban the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. On, we on should the, flag that Russian the, orphans
1: are, are all sick. They have HIV, yeah. they have spina bifida, they have Down syndrome.
0: All the orphans are sick, but the, the, the ones who are sick, the ones they allow to, Americans to adopt are right. sick. So that they, they segment off the sick ones, the ones that, are, that nobody else wants to adopt. And they say, okay, historically they said, Americans can adopt these children. Exactly. And Americans, Americans have come with open arms, and open hearts, and taken these poor children with all these terrible ailments, as you mentioned, HIV, spinal bifida, heart conditions, all sorts of things. And I've met met lots of people who have adopted Russian children, and they bring them back to America. And and in America, there is good health care. I mean, there's a big debate about it, but there's good health care. And these children survived and thrived, and they got the love and the care they needed. And what Putin has done, essentially, is these kids who are sick, were not getting medical care in Russia. And so they were dying in the orphanages, en masse. And so effectively, Putin was killing his own orphans in order to send a message to America about how angry he was at having his and his cronies' assets frozen with the Magnitsky Act. So basically he's like holding a gun to the head of, of a sick child to say, don't seize my assets.
1: He's awful. It's truly evil. That's
0: who Vladimir Putin is. I mean, this sums it up in one one image, what Vladimir Putin is all about.
1: His own team, Sergei Lavrov, others in the Russian government thought that this was an inappropriate step, but he did it anyway.
0: Now, coming back to your second part of your question, which was what was going on in the U.S. government at the time, we we were trying to get the Magnitsky Act passed, and at the time, um, Obama had just come up with this idea of something he called the Russian Reset. He wanted to reset relations with Russia and thinking that somehow he could charm Putin into behaving himself. And so at every step of the way, as I was fighting to get the Magnitsky Act passed, the White House and the State Department were, were trying to, to diminish and stop my efforts, and it was very awful and frustrating. And thank God for the separation of powers between the legislative branch and the executive branch of the U.S. government, because at the legislative branch, there was no issue. This was a nonpartisan issue. I went to Democrats, and I went to Republicans, and everybody was fully on board to say, this is just a total travesty of justice, and we need to do something. And so the Magnitsky Act, when it came for vote, passed 92 to 4 in the Senate, uh, 89% of the House of Representatives, and and as much as as President Obama and and Secretary of State Kerry at the time wanted to stop this, it was unstoppable and veto-proof, and it ended up becoming the law of the land. Mm -hmm.
1: This is an interesting conversation, because I think this sort of speaks to the complexity of a foreign policy and administration, because I was there during the reset, and it was certainly imperfect, and I think it died in the middle around 2012 when Putin came back. But, you know, I think the Obama folks would argue that, you know, the New START Treaty was a pretty significant accomplishment that we were able to get done, sanctions on Iran and North Korea. And I'm not raising that to be defensive, but just to try to introduce how complex these conversations are. I reached out to Mike McFall, who is the national security staffer in charge of Russia in the white house at the time. And then our ambassador to Russia. And he felt like maybe it was more of a disagreement over process and the way to ban these individuals from traveling. But I don't know what was your perspective on the sticking points.
0: Well, I mean, it was pretty clear that, um, it, it, it was both, um, secretary of state Clinton and secretary of state Kerry, because mm-hmm. they were both there at different times. were mm-hmm. trying to tamp this thing down so that it didn't have the impact. I mean, so, so, um, they didn't want this to happen. I mean, it was just... And I'm very close friends with Mike McFall, and he's a dear friend before and after and during. But, um, you know, they were trying to find a way of minimizing this particular uh, initiative so that, that um, they could carry on with their other objectives. And thankfully, that, that they didn't succeed. And so we But it was really uh, tough going, and uh, we, we were dealing with a lot of what I call passive aggression, where, you know, they would just try to keep this thing from, from finding its way out into the surface... At the time, uh, John Kerry was head, was head of the um, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and he was interviewing for the job as Secretary of State as Hillary was on her way out. And he was clearly given some type of, of instruction as, as, uh, as, sec- as head of the Foreign Relations Committee not to let the Magnitsky Act go through the committee. And so every other piece of legislation was going through his committee, and he had completely stalled the Magnitsky Act. And it was only through a, a very odd set of circumstances that we were able to get the Magnitsky Act on the agenda, because there was something else that Obama and Kerry wanted to do, which was repeal another piece of human rights legislation, which which had already become outdated, which um, everyone had sort of agreed needed to be repealed. And we we, we, uh, were able to link the uh, Magnitsky Act to the repeal of this other thing. And and that's what got us past Kerry. But um, it was very frustrating. And And I still feel frustrated thinking about it.
1: No, I mean, look, I understand. I mean, you're referring to the Jackson-Vanik legislation, which was from 1974 that denied trade relations between the U.S. and countries that didn't allow the free emigration of Jews and had non-market economies, which everyone, you're right. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, Jews could emigrate freely and the issue was sort of seen as resolved. but it became a major irritant in the U.S. and Russia. But, you know, regarding the Magnitsky sanctions, I mean, as a credit to you, And your tenacity that this was passed. And I think it's a great story of what an individual can do, a citizen can do to push for foreign policy priorities. So, again, credit to you. So that brings us back to Donald Trump Jr.'s meeting with Paul Manafort and Jared Kushner. It was with a lawyer, and I'm going to butcher another name here, named Natalia Veselnitskaya, who previously had led an effort to repeal the Magnitsky Act. What is her involvement in that meeting with those Trump campaign individuals tell you about her ties to Putin? And can you talk about the shocking resistance you have faced in Washington from PR firms and lobbyists and other assorted scumbags for hire who want to fight you on this?
0: Yeah, so Natalia Veselnitskaya works for a family called the Kotzev family in Russia. The Kotzev family is headed by a man named Pyotr Kotzev, who is a senior member of the Putin regime. So to back up, Putin doesn't want the Magnitsky Act. He hates it because it personally affects him. And then, interestingly, this guy, Pyotr Katsev, his son, ended up somehow getting some of the money from this $230 million tax fraud that Sergei Magnitsky exposed, and he bought property in New York. And so we discovered this back in 2012, and we shared our information with the Department of Justice, who then froze the property and filed a, a federal forfeiture order over it. And so Natalia Veselnitskaya shows up first in New York to fight this money laundering charge against her Russian-government-connected client. And as time went on, they became more and more active and brazen, and and it morphed not just into a criminal defense, but also a major political campaign to lift the Magnitsky Act. And this was hugely well-funded. They had millions of dollars, and they went out and hired the very best most expensive lobbyists, lawyers, public relations executives, smear campaigners, um, everybody, to help them on this anti-Magnitsky campaign. And, and we watched it unfold dramatically last summer when they, they hired um, all these people to run around Capitol Hill and to basically lie and tell stories about um, how Sergei Magnitsky wasn't killed, that he didn't wasn't a whistleblower, and that I had misled Congress and, and various other uh, parliaments around the world. It's disgusting uh, in the whole Magnitsky case, and and these are people who are knowingly lying, spreading misinformation, spreading, and it was just it was shocking that American citizens would do this. And most shocking about it, it was that they were all doing it, pretending that they were, they weren't working for the Russian government and they didn't register as foreign agents, which people are required to do if they work for other governments.
1: Yeah, it is stunning. It is illegal it is gross. No paycheck should be worth that. My last question, because you've been very generous with your time. We, we've talked a lot about Sergey's work, the sanctions, the legislation that you pushed for. But before all that, he was your friend. I was wondering if you just wanted to talk about a little bit about what he was like, you know, what he meant to you, because I think it's important to everyone remember these are human beings who are being treated in an evil way by a government.
0: So Sergey was, was a particularly remarkable young man because he was what I call the, the the face of Russia that we'd like to see. He was this idealist. He was a, um, a person who believed in the law. He was a person who believed in justice and he believed in truth. And, and he was just a really good person. And, and the really horrible thing about this whole story is is that he kept on believing in the law and believing in Russia up until the day he died. He thought that, that somehow it would all come right because the law would prevail. Goodness and truth would prevail. And, and in a certain way, he's... I hope that they will build statues for him in, you know, in post-Putin regime in Russia, for the, you know, St. Sergei, for the guy who, who, who believed in everything that Russia should be as opposed to everything that it was. And so, you know, he, he, by stamping out Sergei, they really, in a certain way, stamped out hope for goodness and truth in Russia.
1: That's very sad. Bill, thank you for talking with me today. Everyone should read your book, Red Notice. It is incredible story of the difficulties you faced, but also your fight to get some measure of justice for your friend. Sergey Magnitsky, thank you for joining the show today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for your interest.
1: All right. Have a good day.